0: Hi, I'm Joseph Lidster, and you're listening to The Sirens of Audio. This is not the Earth! Hey, audiophiles, welcome back. Uh, This is another episode of the Sirens of Audio. My name is Dwayne, I'm your host, and this time we will be discussing the latest Big Finish monthly range release, number 264. Ooh, only 11 to go before the monthly range is finished. It's one that I've been following for a long time, but I do understand why Big Finish have made the decision to go in a slightly different direction to the the regular monthly releases and package things a little bit differently make things a little bit easier for us consumers Uh, with such a backlog of material i i do understand what they're doing so many of us were wanting them to go to 300 just to round it off but that's just for us (laughs) for us fans who like to have round numbers and go a little bit crazy without them i'm going to have joining me very shortly um, the writer of this month's audio scorched earth that is Chris Chapman. I was very privileged to be able to have a chat with him, so going to be able to share that with you in just a moment. Speaking of Chris Chapman, we all know that Chris is involved primarily with the documentaries on the Blu-ray extras and DVD extras and has been for quite a number of years now. And I heard Chris do a podcast recently, I think it was in March this year, on a podcast called Something Who. So I recommend you uh, go back and listen to that. They've put out a few episodes since then, but listen to Something Who. It's somethingwho.podbean.com. Get over there and have a listen to that. It goes really in-depth into Chris Chapman's work on the extras. Going to be covering that a little bit in today's episode, but mainly talking about Scorched Earth and his writing work for Big Finish it has got a feather and a few caps, has our Chris Chapman. So let's have a listen to the trailer for Scorched Earth right now. From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Scorched Earth. Doctor, this is my time, isn't it? France during the war.
1: Uh, My dear Constance, we really should be going. No, Doctor. Tell me, is this it? Is this the end of the war? (laughs) Do you hear that? Like an
0: animal! Shut up! Run faster! I
1: can feel the fire! Please!
0: Please! Don't! Who are you, girl? My name is Philip Hart Ramone, and I do not appreciate seeing defenseless young women abused by big belly men in front of a screaming mob. Whatever you think she's done, she does not deserve this!
1: Nobody deserves this. Fire is definitely not of this earth, though I see no match with anything else in collective Time Lord knowledge. Oh,
0: what do you mean, strike back? The war is ending.
1: Constance, they have shamed and broken my country. It may be that they have ruined it forever, that the France I loved is truly, truly gone.
0: And that terrible favor deserves to be repaid.
1: You have us tied up here. But what does fire care about ropes and wooden barns? That demon has plans for us. For all of Germany.
0: Doctor, that plane.
1: Ah, it's heading this way, isn't it? Very
0: much so. Incoming!
1: Big Finish. We
0: love stories. I'm speaking with Chris Chapman. He's the author of this month's Big Finish monthly release entitled Scorched Earth. Hello, Chris. Hello, Duane, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for, for joining me at this beautiful time of the evening for you in the UK. <laughs> and
1: first thing in the morning for you, I hear. I'm so sorry you're up at 4am to do no, this. No, that's call. okay. Should, the, the, time zone first. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> the things we do for the love of Doctor Who, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. So you're known primarily in Doctor Who fandom. We see your name come up a lot on the documentaries, Blu-ray features, other DVD features, and we've seen your name out there for many years. Um, how did you get into that in the first place, Chris? I,
1: I guess I kind of grew up. I've, I've been a fan of the show since uh, the kind of late Colin, early Sylvester years. So I was, I was kind of a fan who grew up when there wasn't a lot of Doctor Who on telly uh, after eighty nine, uh, and grew up as a massive nerd for telly and for movies and. Ended up. I thought I was going to be a, a movie journalist. I thought I was going to write film reviews for Empire or something. And and actually ended up becoming a, a TV researcher uh, and working for Channel Four on archive shows. They used to do these hundred countdowns, like the hundred greatest family films and so on. Which which can which actually was really fun because I got to meet a lot of my heroes, people like Ray Harryhausen. You know, we got to film with and 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 learn all about these these worlds and these films. And and I started directing, started directing for telly and then realized, blimey, the, the Doctor Who DVDs, they've got special features, haven't they? And people like Ed Stradling and Richard Molesworth and Steve Broster were making documentaries. And I thought, well, I'm I'm doing this for a job. Why aren't I doing the Doctor Who ones as well? Because I love Doctor Who. And, uh, and so in about 2008, I started pitching to Dan Hall uh, and started making documentaries. And we did about 40 docs on the DVD range. And then it all ended, and you know we released it all. There wasn't anything left. And then uh, I kind of got this uh, call from Russell Minton a couple of years ago to say, "Why don't you come and do the Blu-ray docs?" And and we're we're in the middle of doing them. Really, we're very busy, and and it's a great gig because you're given a lot of creative freedom to explore Doctor Who in in ways that kind of push the boundaries a bit and hopefully feel quite fresh and 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 fun. But it's from the heart, you know. And it, and actually getting into Big Finish from there was completely corrupt you know, on every level and that I worked with Nick Briggs a couple of times on the documentaries. I got him to do the voice of the Daleks and the Daleks narrated our death to the Daleks making of and uh, Nick did it all in character and was amazing about it. It was lovely about it and I said afterwards, do you think I could ever pitch a big finish? Cause I've, I've written, you know, for, for the screen and I, I sent him a short, a, a short film that I'd written that had won a few awards and he was lovely about that. And uh, he let me pitch, and then I didn't pitch for two years out of busyness and laziness and, and fear. Uh, and then I pitched the Memory Bank to Alan Barnes, and luckily Alan was <laughs> trying to find stories for a anthology set all about memory. So it was purely uh, good luck, really good luck and corruption mixing together to get in on the uh, on the audios. But I've loved it. I've done about I've worked on about nine or so now over the last three years or so. And it's been an awful lot of fun. I really enjoy them, definitely. So it's nice to mix it with the documentary work because on a documentary, I love it, but you're often crossing your fingers and hoping that somebody might say a certain type of thing or react a certain type of way. Sometimes they surprise you, you know, absolutely, but you're also kind of hoping, I hope they give me that, I hope they they articulate that. And then you come off one of those shoots into a, a script, and suddenly you can make the characters say that and you can be a bit of a, of a fascist really and, and, and force words out of somebody's mouth. So I find it quite, I like to go from one to the other uh, and uh, and bounce back and forth. It's quite nice. So documentary, I think you learn about life and then scripts, you can kind of channel what you've learned into a story, you know. So it's a nice balance, I hope, definitely.
0: Yeah, meeting Harryhausen as a, as a classic, uh, film fan, that would have been such a thrill.
1: Yeah. Oh, I. I the weird thing is, the, the the rest of the crew I was with weren't really that bothered. weren't that bothered, and I was kind of nerding out in the corner, going, "It's Ray Harryhausen, and, and the, he was in his he must have been in his kind of mid to late eighties at that point, and he brought along a little black coffin about that big for the interview. and And I said, "Well, what's that, Ray? What have you got in your coffin?" And he opened it during the interview. And it was one of the original Jason and the Argonaut skeletons, the proper articulated skeletons that Jason has to fight at the end, and that amazing sequence. And and it was one of the originals. And he he took it out on camera, and you could still move its limbs. You know, and it was that proper Wallace and Gromit kind of move it a bit, take a shot, move it a bit, take a shot, kind of approach. So I was just like a pig in shit, really. I I loved meeting uh, Ray and and. So, you know, really it's that kind of thing. It's one the Doctor Who's, you know, it's most exciting when you get to meet your heroes and and then just hopefully put them at ease and have a fun time with them, you know. It's always always fun.
0: Yeah, a couple of standouts for me in the in the Blu-ray documentary range would be um, the Matthew Waterhouse one for sure. Um a lot of people talk about that. He's such he seems like such a lovely guy for for a poor actor who's probably had a lot of stick over the years for <laughs> for his character, oh. <laughs> what, a, what a lovely guy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think Matthew probably has had a bit of stick over the years, I think even at the time when the show went out, you know, I think there were some parts of the audience who, I don't know, maybe saw themselves reflected in Adric or just didn't like Adric, and a lot of people love Adric, but he's always been Marmite. And I think uh, it was lovely making that film, because it felt like we were peeling back a bit of a different level of Matthew and really getting to know him a bit better. And he, I thought he was quite zen, in a way, in that film, you know, he's very—he comes across as a very contented, happy man. I think I don't know what you thought watching it, but I just thought this is this guy's in a really good place, and it was lovely for Toby to kind of hijack that and kind of stow away for a weekend and and uh, and share that with him. Really,
0: the other one I really enjoyed was the John Nathan Turner one, which I, which I've actually spoken of previously on on the podcast, Showman. It actually was quite a stirring documentary on. Because I'm sure when it comes to John Nathan-Turner, he's a very polarising character. You, there's a lot you could say about him, either one way or the other. But I think you put it in a very a very human way. Um, we got to see the man as a, as a real human being. And I, I think it, it helped me personally relate to people like Chris Chibnall, who at the moment is receiving a lot of backlash from what has received. Uh, a lot of backlash from, from fans online, just as back in the day, John Nathan Turner got backlash too. So uh, for that case, for that purpose, I really enjoyed um, uh, Showman as well. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I think, I think a lot of the time on those films and we did a similar kind of approach with the the Liz Sladen biography that we did recently at our Sarah Jane. I kind of want those films to kind of walk you in the shoes of, of those people. I, I don't really want to turn up and judge John or judge Liz and tell you, exactly what kind of person they are. I don't want to write any voiceover for it that spells it out. I, I just want you to kind of experience their life. And, and and that's all the visual treatment that we do, where we return to locations and we glide through locations that are still there, that were, you know, where John grew up or went to school or, you know, started at the BBC or whatever. And and I, I hope they are compassionate, those films, and, and the fact that we can, you know, treat a, a Marmite figure like John, again, quite Marmite with you know compare that with someone like Liz who's kind of universally loved but hopefully we came at them with the same kind of fairness you know that you just say well let's just tell you what happened through the words of the people that uh, that were there and and let you figure it out you know let you decide but I think John's life you know is a story of two halves is a story of an amazing rise uh, that tells you so much about telly and equally this second half four that also tells you so much about telly and that was what really attracted me to it you know the kind of the greek kind of epic of john's life in a way it is a tragedy in a way that i don't think elizabeth's life is a tragedy i think elizabeth's life is cut short but has this amazing triumphant final act. you know that makes it very powerful in a different way so they were really you know i'd love us to do a lot more like that i've said before you know that I'd love to do a, a proper big Pat and biography, you know, a real Pat one. And I'd love to shine a light on some of the, the companions who died too young, you know, people like Michael Craze and Ian Martyr, you know, and even lesser known people like kind of Adrian Hill, you know, I'd love us to do something on really. Uh, so hopefully that's just the beginning of the Sherman one. You mentioned the
0: Sarah Jane documentary, which I, I haven't yet seen because... <laughs> um, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the Australian release of the Blu-ray, which I don't think is an, is released until next month. So I haven't seen that yet. However, the big talk about that documentary was Tom Baker's reactions within it. What was it like being in that room with Tom Baker, a legendary figure? It, it, it seems I, I saw the the little clip that found its way online and. It must yeah. have been such an emotional moment.
1: Yeah, it was, it was an amazing day, really. And and I, I didn't know what to think when I saw that clip had kind of gone a bit viral. Because uh, I kind of thought, well, don't watch it out of context. You know, watch the film. And I, I kind of felt a bit bad for Tom that it was kind of going out there on its own. Luckily, people, I think, were being very sensitive with it and saying and feeling nice things in reaction to it. But I did feel for Tom a bit because I thought that's that's something that you kind of want the context for, I think which the rest of the film gives you Uh, we had a lovely day with Tom you know we we filmed him quite close to to his neck of the woods and I'd interviewed him once before when we did a Sharda making of and he was on really good form for that so I I guess we all kind of went in feeling quite relaxed and not being too worried about you know you know meeting a big hero or whatever you know we we just thought well it's Tom and uh, you know and if you if Tom wants to talk about something, he will. And if he doesn't want to talk about it, he just won't his agent just won't say yes to the interview. So he does only what he wants to do. So I I think you're guaranteed if if he does say yes, then he will engage and, and be and be on form. And we were just lucky, I think, that the subject we were talking about, to talk about Liz with Tom, is something he's so he has such attachment to the memory of Liz and to what she represents in his in his life, in his Doctor Who time. That I was just there, kind of gently prodding <laughs> and 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 Tom just needed it needed to be guided from one bit to to the next bit, but there wasn 't anything special that we did you know that I can lay claim to. I think Tom just uh, was in a really good place to talk about Liz, and I think it probably surprised him i think to to revisit some of those memories. you know we tried to talk to him about things that. Don't always get talked about that much, you know, so their Liverpool connection, you know, both being Scousers, but kind of sort of secret Scousers, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily realise immediately that they're both scouts, and what it meant to them to go back and turn on the Blackpool lights, you know, just north of Liverpool when they were both at the height of their fame. So I guess we were trying to talk to him about things that he doesn't always get asked about. So maybe that opened up the conversation and opened up a few memories for him that felt fresh and I think he really liked watching the clips again you know having something to bounce off so it was lovely to put that together and I think it's really struck a chord with people because we all I think you know the vast majority of Doctor Who fans have a huge inbuilt affection for Tom and when you see one of your heroes upset you know feeling emotion like that I think it's it's very hard to watch but hopefully you know in a good way because it comes from love you know it comes from the affection he had for Liz it's not it's not um, I don't think you're seeing Tom a broken man I think you're seeing him remember love and that's a beautiful thing that he let us see and let us put in the film because he could have easily turned around at the end of that interview and said you know that bit when I got upset could you not use that and and I would have had to have said yes I would have had to say okay I won't then because I'm not, I'm not an asshole. <laughs> but, but, but that was very good of Tom to, to put that out there, I think, and and be happy for the world to see that.
0: that that's certainly the impression I got. I didn't get the impression that he was heartbroken. It, well, as such, not in a negative way. It was a positive. I only saw it as a positive, put it that way. Yeah. But do, do you see what I did there? You mentioned Big Finish before, how you kind of got in through the side door. I've been talking to you for about 20 minutes about the Blu-ray releases uh, and the yeah. main focus that I wanted to talk about was this month's Big Finish main range release okay. called Scorched Earth, which I I took issue with because I once wrote a movie treatment called Scorched Earth, so I was wondering <laughs> whether it would have been the same. I was ready, I was ready with my lawyers uh, on the side, okay. but fortunately, no. It was it was it was completely different to my idea. However, Ooh, this is good. the second. St- I don't know if you follow Big Finish uh, at all particularly the monthly range, but this is the second one this year that is set at around about the same time. Earlier in the year, Helen Goldwyn wrote an episode called Subterfuge, which was set around the same time, but in England, uh, whereas this one's in France. So was this a completely clean pitch by you or were you given some of the basic bones to work with for this one?
1: No, this one... I mean, it, it varies with my work on Big Finish. and some stories, like uh, I did hosts of the Wirren for the Unit Range uh, and Warzone as well uh, with Peter Davidson. that that that, and on those, the script editors will come to me and say, you know, here's here's the bare bones. Could you do a Unit Wirren story, or could you do uh, a big big race of death with uh, with Peter? But on this one, on Scorched Earth. I, I pitched it, it cold, uh, so to speak, and it's coincidence actually that it's ended up in the same year as Helen's uh, story. That I just think that's testament to the fact that, particularly World War Two, is just an inexhaustible bed of of human stories. I think that we will never run out of telling stories about that era, and I don't think that's patriotism or sentimentality or nostalgia. I just think that it, an incredible millions and millions and millions of of incredibly Powerful human stories happened in the space of six years, and and I think we'll always be going back to them. But no, I I uh, had a document of different story ideas, and and I was pitching one to John Ainsworth, the the script editor on the range on on the Collins stories, and uh, I was saying the core of it was that my grandfather Bill had he he was born Walter Curtis, and like a lot of people in that generation, he grew up been known from a different name and became Billy and Bill but Walter Curtis as there is a Walter Curtis in the story he in real life was late on on to d day you know he came in as a mobile radar operator uh, he landed on d day plus 27 i made it a bit earlier in the story uh, to d day plus 21 but he always used to tell me stories about how he he kind of he kind of missed the fight really you know he arrived and and all the bloody work had been done. And his the focus of his job was to man the radar posts to report back about the fighters up in the air. And they progressed slowly to Berlin. And then he was around for about six months in the peacekeeping efforts kind of after the end of the war. And he would talk about going into French villages and that kind of reception that they received. Uh, he had an amazing box of mementos that he kept, of little things he'd found along the way. and. Really interesting black market things like kind of German uniform in, insignias, you know, swastikas that the guys had had obviously been handing around in the mess, you know, and, and and had brought back, and and I just thought it was a really interesting period in in time, you know, that feeling of what do you what do human beings do when the fight is is done but not quite done, you know, for France, the the war is sort of over, you know, it doesn't end for months and it, and for you you know for a year or so. But for those people in those villages, it must have felt like it was over after our occupation. And I thought there might be something interesting to write about, about rage and anger in peacetime. And I guess this idea I've always clung on to that I genuinely, I've always thought that you can't, uh, I really strongly believe that you can't ruin things. I think you can, I think things can be, bad things can be happening and people can do bad things. But I, don't, but I think the idea of being ruined, the idea of something being made to be worthless and made to be ruined, I reject. And I think there's always hope, you know, and it's always possible that something good can come out of something bad, that something who seem, somebody who seems bad is capable of good. And that kind of is a, a motto, if you like, of, of the story, I think. You know, that, uh, that the characters who think things are tarnished and ruined and worth destroying or cleansing, you know, I don't agree with those characters and, and the story kind of explores that, I guess.
0: Yeah, I, I sense that theme throughout the story as well. And there's two elements, really. There's the there's the alien menace and there's also the, the relationship, which I found extremely interesting between Constance and Flip, two different characters from two different eras in history dealing with the same subject in two completely different, different ways and uh, I found myself at first being on the side of Constance and thinking well Flip was overreacting and then uh, by the end of it Constance had turned around and had kind of come and seen Flip's point of view did you have fun working with that concept weaving that through the story I found that a really enjoyable aspect to this story.
1: Thank you yeah it was I mean, I, I wrote for Philip and Constance on uh, Colin Baker's story called The Middle a year or two ago, and I really loved writing for them. I listened to a lot of their other stories around that time, and I thought that it's it's lovely that they, I think I've always said, that the when they brought them together as companions, that you kind of expect sometimes that they're going to emphasise you know, the differences between two people like that and, and that they will fight or they will be jealous over the doctor or something. And actually I love the fact that when they wrote a Quicksilver that they got on like a house on fire and they immediately had this, this lovely relationship and it's kind of ever so slightly maternal or kind of big sisterly from Constance, but they kind of they're very much interesting equals and they're I think delighted by the differences between them where they spot them. And I just thought actually it was a good time to, run, to pitch a story that, looked at the fact that they get on so well, but then to say, actually, these are two women from incredibly different generations, you know, uh, with incredibly different perspectives. And and wouldn't it be interesting to to tell a story that kind of revealed that to each other, you know, that they suddenly realised, oh, we do get on, but we are really different, aren't we? You know, we, we come from really different worlds. And I think there is logic to what they're both saying. I think for Constance, you know, some, I saw somebody post on a forum, they didn't think Constance had previously had some kind of racism built into her, you know, that, that she didn't hate the Nazis. And I thought that well, kind of missed it because I'm kind of saying, you know, anybody living through something like World War Two has a, a completely understandable built in hatred that will fester away and be a big part of their perspective. You know, you're not going to be able to live through something as awful as that and not resent your, your enemy. You know, and the people who are making you fight and lose your friends, you know, so it's, it made perfect sense to me that Constance would uh, would feel like the Germans deserve justice, and that sometimes that justice can be can be harsh, you know. But that's what people have lived through; that's what the, the French had lived through, and they deserved a sense of of retaliation. But I think in con- in contrast, Flip is a very modern woman and sees it as a particularly sees it as a crime, as an attack, an assault on on a young woman and comes at it from that point of view. I hope that the story is balanced enough that you don't feel immediately that one of them's in the wrong. You kind of think, well, I I get why you would feel like that. And that's the important thing. I'm not trying to say, I don't want the viewer, the audience to really feel like they have to join a side. I just want them to think, I get why you feel that way. And that's how the doctor felt he's kind of, he ultimately would preach compassion. I think in every circumstance and, uh, and so ultimately, he wants Constance to let go of hate because the Doctor's not, he's not the kind of character who likes to keep hold of hate, you know. And so ultimately, he wants Constance to let go of that. But he loves her enough as a friend and he understands her enough to let her find her way and not to, not to judge her too harshly, I think. So it was a really interesting thing to play. And I, and I think it's it's been lovely that it's got the reaction that it has has so far, you know, in terms of, those characters and i know the girls i know um that lisa and miranda loved performing those scenes because there's a, a lot to get your teeth into i think and hopefully it won't just be a done in one you know hopefully we can you know address those uh, their relationship in that kind of interesting way in the future as well i
0: hope i see a similarity to what you've done there in that story to something that has happened in fandom and i seem to mention this every time i come on and that's uh, I, I see a similarity between what you've done in the story and the fan reaction to the Talons of Wang Chiang. So people in those days, in the 70s, when the Talons of Wang Chiang, and even myself, I'm a slightly older generation, we never thought a second thing of it. But the younger generation these days uh, seem to be quite outraged at uh, some of the contents of, of Talons, which to me and many other fans is like, it's like the Holy Grail of doctor who stories so in a sense it's a similar thing there two two different worldviews sort of colliding and uh i think you've tried to try to with your story tried to help us to see that we can understand each other rather than either condemn one or the other
1: i think that's the key thing it's understanding you know with the with talons i think that the best thing both sides of that argument can do is is understand each other I think where that argument breaks down is when one side, e- either side feels like the other side is trying to say, you can't have this thing, or your opinion is not valid or you know, the one side assumes, what, do you never want me to have this, watch this story again that I love? And you, you think, well, actually, I don't think any either side is trying to, to kind of say, you can't tell me this, you can't have this discussion. I just think they in that situation, everybody has to listen to the other side, you know, and, and, and understand it. And, and I think I think both of those viewpoints are valid because I think you have to watch something like whether it's Talons or whether it's uh, <laughs> Birth of a Nation or Dumbo or uh, Short Circuit or, <laughs> or, or anything else that has cultural aspects that have dated badly. And there's no doubt that talent is dated badly. I think and anything like that, you still have to be able to look at it and say, I understand why it happened. I can see the context of the time that it was made and I will weigh that up and take that into account. But equally, I think people reacting to it now are having a modern perspective on it and you always need to be able to encourage a modern reading of your piece of fiction or whatever it is you know that keeps things interesting you can't say all the opinions about talents have been had everybody needs to shut up now you just have to keep listening to what how a a text is being read for a new generation you know that's how this works so yeah I I, I, maybe it is is quite similar because I think my message would be can you just listen to each other can you just try and understand each other a bit better and not go to extremes on this Uh, because you both deserve to be listened to and that's the way I'd feel about Constance and Flip as well that they do both deserve to be listened to and understood what's it like
0: writing for Colin Baker you've written for three different doctors now I don't think we've seen your Tom Baker episodes released yet but out of the three what's how would you compare uh, writing for Colin as opposed to the others
1: I really like writing for Colin and I think there's always going to be a, a connection in my head because Colin's the first doctor I ever remember watching on telly and they're very uh, I was very young I think I must have been four when Trial of a Time World was on and I have very vivid memories of people of that particularly that woman at the end of Vervoids 2 when she they go in and she's half Vervoid down the middle uh, really really and then Perry and Mindwalk getting her head shaved and uh, you know horrible, horrible imagery everybody thinks of Trial as being kind of jolly and and Campy and, and Panto and Pip and Jane. But there's some really kind of messed up imagery in it as well. And so I always felt that connection to Colin. And writing for Colin, I think, I think it's just really fun. I think his doctor has such a range of, he's he's kind of erudite and he's a raconteur. So you can have fun with the language and you can give it a little bit of Pip and Jane. You know, you can, you can embrace that, that uh, alliteration and so on and have fun with that. But we know that his doctor can go dark. You know, we know that he can get angry. I'm writing one at the moment when he gets very angry and you know that that's in him. And I think Big Finish have done so well to make a connection between him and his companions. You know, you saw that in Evelyn and you definitely see it in Constance and Flip. Uh, And obviously with Perry and and Mel as well. But there's a genuine care and, and affection that Colin plays. And I think that's great you know for the characters and in a, in a place so i love writing for colin and i, I don't know it, it sounds a bit wanky but i think uh i i feel when i write for colin that that his voice kind of comes quite naturally onto the the page so it feels it's quite it's quite a fun relaxed thing i don't have to uh strain t- too much to find that voice so that that's that's always pleasant definitely and i think it would be i think i'd find it in a way uh, I don't know who, which Doctors would be hardest to write for, really. I think Tom, I felt the weight of, of the years, you know, with Tom and thought, And also, Tom, there have been so many Toms on screen, haven't they? You know, I really wanted to write for kind of uh, season 13, kind of season 13, 14 Tom and have him be quite, you know, capable of being grumpy and capable of being a bit more alien. So I think with some Doctors, you have to pick which version of this Doctor. Am I going to write for? But uh, I'm quite happy writing for any of them, really, because it's just—it's amazingly exciting to think I'm going to write this, and then one of my heroes is going to say it, and that's still a thrill, definitely. And I hope it will always be.
0: Yeah, I've got to say that Colin Baker was probably my hero when it came to. I was always uh, pretty obsessed with Doctor Who, but it wasn't until. Uh, season 22 i think revelation of the daleks really stood out to me uh when i was a kid when i saw that on tv for the first time i was in high school at the time so uh, i remember the devastation i felt when after trial of a time lord i wasn't going to get any more colin (laughs) what do you think was he's been so good on audio what do you think was uh, his main drawback uh on, on television, as a television doctor?
1: You know, I think that there is a lot to love in that era. And you mentioned Revelation, you know, which I, I watched on when BBC2 repeated it in the UK in about 92, and I loved it. And Varos is such an interesting script. And and I do think Trial's got lots of high points. And, and even things like Attack of the Cybermen, which has got quite a mixed-up script, has this great kind of visual flair a lot of the time, you know. But ultimately, I think Colin was... Crippled partly on screen by what was going on behind the scenes. I think that the kind of falling out, sadly, between John Nathan Turner and Eric saywood I think, is becomes the story of that era when it shouldn't be. I think he's unfortunately. I don't think John Nathan Turner should pick costumes for people, and and I think that his efforts to probably mirror Colin after him as a fashion sense were misplaced, and I think John came to realise that. I'm sure Colin would say that straight off the bat, And and I think I think. All of that mess means that I don't think the scripts for Colin are as strong as they should be. Uh, and I think if Colin had been luckier with what was happening behind the scenes on the show, in the writing and the producing, then I think he would have been much more successful. I don't, think it's, I don't think Colin's to blame for that at all. I just think the scripts weren't strong enough and weren't as good as Peter was given and weren't as good as Sylvester was ultimately given. And I think that's a real shame for Colin. And, and, and I think ultimately... Ultimately, I didn't care about that because I love his Doctor. But I think if there's a disconnect with Joe Public, you know, with the average person on the street, then it's caused by that. And I hope that Big Finish has done some good in galvanising love for Colin's Doctor and has really shown hopefully the broad range of what that Doctor can do. And I think just like they've done for Paul, you know, that the Eighth Doctor has an era that was denied at the time, I think that 's where big Finish really excel and say actually we 're going to make our own rules up and and do the thing that we wanted to do and I think Colin's been a massive beneficiary of that definitely
0: do you think it's that we don 't see the costume on audio that has a lot to do with it
1: <laughs> I think it probably helps I think when you 're doing the big emotional bits, it would probably be a distraction. I always try and get a reference or two in into the script about colin 's costume because unlike some of the other doctors, you think, well there's no way that people would ignore it you know if he's meeting soldiers in world war 2 they're gonna say something because it's it's a big deal and, and i'm writing a new one at the moment where he's in disguise at one point and i kind of have to make that really clear as to why people aren't responding to him in a kind of oh is it fancy dress a way? because there's no way his doctor can be incognito is there it's such a such a statement. But I think, yes, I know Colin has said he, he would have loved a, a stripped back kind of black costume and there's the later kind of blue costume, the blue version of his coat that's used in, I think it's it started in the comic strips and it's ended up going into a few different bits of media. I wouldn't change his costume now. That is Colin's doctor, but it's, it would have been fascinating to see a more subtle costume maybe along the lines of what Sylvester ends up in minus the question marks. You know, I think it would have been really interesting to see colin you know where whether that would have changed minds i don't know but on audio you certainly i don't miss it i say
0: subtlety in the 80s it's a bit of a oxymoron isn't it <laughs> there was one slight reference that i picked up in scorched earth that uh, that i wanted to mention and and flip actually refers to it when she meets the french resistance she has a little reference to hello hello were you a fan of that show
1: too <laughs> I love a Lolo. And I did fight with myself and think, would Flip know what a Lolo was? Because Flip, Flip is very young. I think Flip is meant to be kind of 19 or so, isn't she? Uh, but then it's been repeated loads in the UK. It was on telly like about three or four years ago. So I'm assuming Flip's parents probably watched it and sat her down in front of it. And it's enough of a cultural reference point. If she'd said, if she'd made a Secret Army reference, it might have been a bit more unbelievable. But I, I love a Lolo. And I thought, it's good to kind of invoke it in this kind of story because I think the viewer will immediately think R- French resistance, French village, cafes, and stuff. Oh, it's very low and low, isn't it? So I thought I'll cut them off at the pass and uh, get it in there as a reference. And there's a lot of things I'm kind of referencing a, a bit. I mean, I, I went back and I, I'm a big World War two buff anyway, but I reread a lot of Anthony Beaver and stuff like that and rewatched certain episodes of The World at War and other docs I could lay my hands on. and the other thing that ended up being a really big ref- reference point was uh, the great, really misunderstood but amazing uh, Michael Mann film, uh, *The Keep* from 1983. I think it's 1983. Uh, which, uh, if you haven't seen it, see it. Kind of seek it out. It's quite tricky to find, but it's Michael Mann's second film that he made uh, straight after *Thief*, but still about, well, about a decade before he made *Heat*. And the really interesting thing about *The Keep* is it's set in, I think it's in the Carpathian Mountains. I think. And it's all about a, a battalion or platoon of Nazi soldiers who come to this castle, to this keep, and find that it's haunted by something that kind of sees their their sins, you know, and sees their evil and, and does something about it. And I thought the really interesting thing about the film is that for the most part of that film, barring Scott Glenn's kind of wacko character, most of the the main characters that you follow are these German soldiers. And I think it really had... The film has a very balanced attitude to them, which I agree with, you know, that it doesn't say German soldiers, the average German soldier doesn't say the average German soldier is evil. It says the average German soldier is probably highly messed up, doing the wrong thing, following the wrong orders, brainwashed and, and making bad choices. But they're not evil. You know, there are obviously a lot of genuinely evil people who wore swastikas you know and we know who those monsters are but i i really do believe that the average german soldier was not necessarily one of those monsters i think those monsters did exist in the in the ranks but i think if you picked a random german soldier i think he was probably just a scared young man and and i don't think it's right to demonize every single member of a of a whole nation's military and so i in a way i hope uh, that the story kind of reflects that that you have, I, was, I listened to a lot of the Keep soundtrack to channel it. And so the German soldiers in it, and I've seen quite a bit of debate online about this, which is really good that people are talking and discussing it and having a viewpoint. And some people were saying, you know, should the doctor be siding with Nazis? And I, I kind of, you know, certainly myself, I feel those characters in the, in the, in the script, we're not saying, we're, I'm certainly not saying that they are evil. Cause I don't, I don't believe that, you know, I don't believe that they were necessarily Evil, but they they, are—they—they admit themselves that they have done awful things and they have sins and crimes that should be accounted for. And the doctor comes into it with his normal compassion of saying, "You know, Nazis aren't—you know, every soldier wasn't a Nazi." But the soldiers kind of correct him and say, "Actually, you know, you're being a bit childish about this. We—we know what we've done. You know, we know that we've committed crimes." And so they're living with that sin and the fact that the fire demon is chasing them is kind of a metaphor for that guilt and that responsibility for what they've done. But I also wanted that sense that it is still possible for somebody who's committed awful acts to to do some good and to not correct or fix or remove their guilt, but to do something that, that helps and not to be lost, you know, not to be ruined i saw somebody say that um, that they were assuming they were high ranking soldiers because one of them ends up in a in a in a car that he says he drove into paris but but actually you know they're not intended as high ranking soldiers that one of them's an officer the others are, are just normal grunts and we don't say that he owns we don't say that he owns the flash car we just say that he drove into paris and it, it might have been the chauffeur it might have been driving with friends you know we 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 don't say that he's i think somebody was saying he must be a high high rank kind of nuremberg level monster and the doctor deciding with a monster that's really not what we're certainly not what i'm intending to say but i am trying to say these are people you know and, the, and everybody on both sides of the war were people and we need to have a little bit of understanding and empathy for what they were living through and uh and and so it's not black and white it's not good and bad even though with world war ii it's more tempting to see it that way because there were monsters there were more monsters on one side absolutely than there were on on the, on the other side and so it's tempting to see the whole thing as good versus evil but i don't think it's that simple i don't think it's ever that simple and constance says you know it's it's not black and white it is messy and and that's what we were trying to reflect so i i hope there's a lot of sources that i'm trying to put in there to kind of to get into the mix and and a lower low to come back to your question, a lower low was, was absolutely one of I would have probably put in a, a kind of good mooning reference if I thought Flip could have got away with saying it, but uh, uh I didn't go quite that far. But I'm glad that you're been uh, that you're a lower low fan over in uh, Tasmania.
0: <laughs> I would have loved to have heard Colin say, You stupid woman, yeah, that would have
1: been good. <laughs> you're a stupid, woman. I bet he, he could do a good one of those, he well. would. He and would. of course, oh, Carmen Savera sure. is is Doctor Who royalty as well, isn't she? She did too, didn't she? She's she a, did, uh. Madame Edith is in The Celestial Toymaker, and she's in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, isn't she? So she you've is. Got... Yep. I don't think Arthur Bostrom's ever been in Who, has he? We've never had an with with Crabtree.
0: I don't think so. We had Guy
1: Siner. Yes. Guy Sina was in Genesis, isn't he? And there's that lovely behind-the-scenes story that we told in The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, making of that they, they they were filming in the in the big tent next to where a lolo was being shot and then there's a fire alarm and they all end up in the car park together in costume and people took photos and I think when that set of photos got sent over to me from the designer, I just thought this is my dream mashup here <laughs> if you could do you know, what, why could big, could Big Finish do an Alolo license? You know, could they have we I guess we've not got Any anymore, have we? We'd have to recast Renee and Edith and a few others, but maybe one day.
0: So we went from scorched earth to uh, scorched car park. So, yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> no, a, a very, very worthy addition to the main range, which uh, has just been announced over the last couple of days that the main range is coming to an end. So you got a few in there, Chris.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting development, isn't it? Because they've been talking, I know Nick and Benji on the podcast have been talking about it for years, that the main range is going to end. And really, I saw something saying the, main, the main, main range is ending, which makes it sound a lot more dramatic and negative than it is. It's, I think actually, if Big Finish do it right, then it will be really good because it gives you so much more flexibility. I think I find this when I pitch, that sometimes some stories just aren't meant to be four parts long you know you can fool yourself saying oh god this is a three-parter but i'm gonna have to make it look like a four-parter and you've seen the range diversify into like we did with Warzone, where you've got two two-parters on the same release and i think that's really nice but actually three parts is a lovely doctor who size three-act structure kind of 70 minutes or so i guess of of material when they do two-parters they work but I think the box sets that approach will allow so much more flexibility in terms of the way you tell a story that suddenly you can have a five part Colin Baker. You can have a three part Colin Baker. You can have a little one party, you know, like a mission to the unknown equivalent or whatever. I, I hope it gives the range a load more flexibility and, uh, and also allows you to, to make, um, I think there'd always be a worry if you did a trilogy like we've just done with Colin and Flip and, and Constance That you think, well, can can they all? Can these three stories really connect? Because what if people are just dipping in to one of the three? Will that put people off? But in a box set, I don't think you want them all to interconnect in a super serialized way. But within one box set, you can definitely have huge threads that kind of cross over into that, and that that's really exciting that you've got that option, if that's right for the story. I'm writing a Colin at the moment, which I think is just a normal main range. I don't think it's for a boxer, and that's a uh, one with Colin. And it's a kind of semi historical one again. And this is one that Colin has asked for in a way, he didn't ask for me particularly, but he said, I've always wanted to see a story where this happens. And I think he said that to David Richardson. Uh, David Richardson said that to John Ainsworth. And then John came to me and said, Would you like to write this thing that Colin's always wanted to do? So that's what we're doing now, is the thing that Colin's always wanted to do. Uh, and I'm in the process of I think it's it's going to happen that writing for a different range for a box set with a character who well with a, with a kind of a very different type of character in it so that will be quite fun as well so I'm working on those two at the moment and then I, I need to get some more pictures in really but I, it's such about as I said it's such a balancing act to try and not destroy my life by taking on too many films and too much telly and and the scripts as well as i try and get a balance where i can so as not to go crazy
0: i really enjoyed the vague way you put that second thing that you're working on there in in
1: such a way that you didn't breach your confidentiality
0: clause at all
1: well well, well I, I do worry a bit because i think big finish are you know rightly so quite secretive you know and they and they feel very strongly they want to put a press release out and that's the thing that announces what happens and and I, I want to do what they tell me to, basically. Oh, I <laughs> so would too. I would do I, exactly I, I, the I, same. I, <laughs> so so I, I'm happy saying it's a Colin, but they wouldn't want me to say anything else. So <laughs> I won't. But I, so at some point, we can talk about anything to do with it, but uh, not yet.
0: Chris Chapman, thank you so much for having a chat with me about uh, all things Doctor Who, both in audio and your documentary work. It's been a, a pleasure
1: and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for getting up so early in the morning. And hello Tasmania. I, I, I love that there are Doctor Who fans everywhere in the world. So I hope Tasmania is enjoying Doctor Who right now.
0: Yes, Chris, we certainly are. We are enjoying Doctor Who everywhere. And that wraps it up for another episode of the Sirens of Audio. Hope you have enjoyed it. Dear listener, we're supposed to refer to you in the singular, aren't we? To make it sound more personable. But really, podcasters want hundreds, if not thousands of people listening. So I hope there's listeners, not just a listener. But if there is only one, that's okay too. We do this for love. If you want to contact me for some feedback, uh, you can do so through our various channels. We're on Twitter at Audio Sirens. Facebook, you just do a search for The Sirens of Audio. You can contact me via email, which is sirensofaudio at gmail.com and our website is sirensofaudio.com And remember... Until next time, folks, in the immortal words of Sylvester McCoy, you must listen to audio drama because audio drama.